All right. So as I as I was saying, the, the point of the lecture today is to get through adolescence through late adulthood. And in each of these areas, talk about the physical, cognitive, and social emotional development uh, that, that occurs during each of these phases. And to begin with, I think it is important just to note that um, um, we know now for sure that uh, we continue to develop throughout our lifespan. Um, and you know, if we think about the thought experiment, and that's to try this thought experiment of whatever your current age is, imagine yourself in 10 years from now. Um, because when we do these types of thought experiments, uh, we come to the conclusion that there are, there are really three basic guarantees in life. Uh, the first guarantee is that um, we're all going to uh, pass away someday. Um, and then dependent upon our faith, that will lead us to where we go next. But the other thing that is, is a guaranteed is uh, we'll all end up paying taxes. So that's the second uh, guarantee in life. And then the third guarantee in life is that things will always change. I can guarantee that uh, you're not going to be the same person five years from now as you are today. Um, and, and it's just a guarantee. And so we have to recognize this and we can even take it a step further and consider where we'd be in 20 years or 30 years. Um, and soon after doing these kind of thought experiments, um, it, it becomes obvious that change is inevitable, okay? And, um, and that that's okay. And as developmental psychologists, we recognize that change occurs in three main areas of life. One is our physical uh, selves. Um, uh, you know, when you're in your 20s, um, your body is at its most top performance as an adult. And then as we age and the body ages, um, it will start to, to uh, inevitably um, um, change and, and reduce capacities. Uh, cognitively, again, you know, we, we've already talked about early childhood as being the best cognitive development area, but really the 20s and 30s are, are, are years of, of uh, great growth and understanding of the world. And then again, after that, we start to see cognitive declines. And then in our social emotional world, uh, our social relationships uh, will change, um, especially as we're, we're older. I, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it in this class, but I know I mentioned it in a few of my others that, you know, one of the biggest risk time periods for um, male suicides is when, there's, when males start going through the retirement process and start disengaging from their work world. Because not only um, are they losing an identity, an identity of who they are, an important one, uh, they're also losing those work friendships in a lot of ways, or they're, they're distancing themselves, not necessarily losing them, but distancing themselves. And that becomes very, very difficult for a lot of people. And uh, to add to that, we're seeing that trend with women too. Now that more women are entering the workforce and entering careers, um, uh, we're seeing that same trend that we've seen with men for about the last 50 to 70 years, that once you get to that age, uh, 
and women are starting to disengage from their careers now, uh, we're seeing the same trend with suicide and suicide attempts. So, uh, but we do know uh, successful older adults tend to maintain good social circles. Um, and we also recognize that that also influences cognition and it also in influences physical um, um, development. We find that uh, when older adults maintain good social connections, social outings, connection with family, those types of things, that the cognitive declines we see in older age are much slower than, than individuals who disengage. And we also note that the physical uh, declines um, tend to be slower as well. So that's the interaction between those three. Okay. And just in every question that we ask, uh, just like with a child is, but to what extent does development adulthood due to intrinsic fundamental change in the organism or due to environmental or social community? And that's kind of what we were just talking about is that it's all an interaction, okay? The other thing that we, we often ask in, in when looking at adult development specifically is, is change continuous or gradual? or is it mar marked by major transitions, kind of like in Erickson's model? Um, and we'll find that it's actually a combination of that. There's one variable that a lot of the adult development literature um, uh, emphasizes, and that is life events. Um, uh, children and, and even into adolescence, um, life events can uh, have a null effect, or it can have a major effect. But we know life events as we get older and into young adulthood, middle adulthood, and even into older age, that major life event, uh, uh, events such as uh, divorce or marriage or, or death of a parent or any of those major things has more of an impact on us as adults. Um, and so those are things that we, we're, we're coming to understand. So, so uh, just so you all know, if, especially if uh, you continue on and you take the adult um, uh, growth and development class and whatnot, that's going to be a fourth variable that you'll be looking at. Um, but we, we do need to recognize that these are very similar questions that we ask with childhood. So, it, for example, even the life events, we look at ACES. Uh, from that podcast that you all did on Wednesday. And we realized that the more uh, uh, major events in a childhood's life, we should negative events, the more impact that it has. And we see that same trend with adults. While one negative event does have a larger impact, those are compounded just like in childhood, they can even have a more even significant impact on the adult. The one thing that we do need to recognize, especially when we get into adulthood is, is when we look at childhood, it, it's pretty refined, okay? In that um, we can see typical child growth, 
based on life experience, based on when they were born. How We even have those charts when you go to the pre, uh, pediatrician that shows at what percentile your child is in um, and those types of things. Uh, when we get into adulthood, and this is going to be the major difference when we're talking about adolescents and adults, is that the variation between individuals is much higher. Um, and so when we're talking about what are considered typical physical, cognitive, and social uh, changes, uh, we need to recognize that, that there's also a great variation within these what we call typical changes. Uh, one great example is cognitive change, okay? Uh, most recent research shows that uh, a lot of adults have very minimal cognitive decline into older adulthood. And then we have another population that end up with things like dementia and Alzheimer's, where they have complete cognitive um, dysfunctioning and, and memory loss. And so the variation between those two is really, really high. Um, and so we got to recognize that these changes are, are very variable among uh, adults. So let's start with adolescence. Um, it is difficult to decide exactly when adolescence begins and ends. And, and we talked about this in the beginning of the class and talking about development. Um, you know, when we look at puberty, uh, I mentioned that there's children as young as five um, going through puberty. And I mentioned the eight-year-old that I worked with. So do we consider them adolescents or do we still consider them children? Because the typical um, uh, uh, definition of adolescence is when an individual goes through physical puberty and then on. And then when does it end? Um, so uh, if you remember, Freud argued that it was 18. Um, a lot of states recognize 21 because that's becomes illegal, for example, drinking age or um, and a lot of all states recognize 18 because that's the voting age. Uh, does it end just in the teens with 19? Um, or does it end as we defined at the beginning of the semester when people go through psychological maturation? So it would be 27. And so adolescence itself is, is really difficult to really nail down what chronologic, chronological period we're talking about. Are we talking about physical development? And then when does that end? Does it end with psychological? Okay, so, and so just, just to kind of give an understanding of this, if we look at uh, different cultures, they have different uh, ages, for example, consent of when a person can start having sex consensually. Uh, in some countries, it's 12, some countries, it's 14, some countries, it's 15. Um, in most states here in the United States, it's 18, but there's even variation in that. For example, there's some southern states where it's 16. Um, and so uh, when we look at these things, it's important to keep these variables in mind that adolescence is, ha has a couple definitions. One is there's a cultural definition, um, such as the legal age for consent. That brings also um, uh, when a country or a state recognizes adulthood. 
the United States, uh, for the most part, recognizes it at age 18, but you don't get full adult rights usually until you're 21. Um, where in other countries, adulthood starts at a much, much younger age, and a few cultures, it starts at a much later age. Okay, so there's legal definitions of when adolescence ends. But when it comes down to it, um, it's really, really difficult to define when one begins and when one ends. And even within the psychological literature, it's defined very widely. Um, uh, most psychologists argue that uh, what adolescence really is, is it's not necessarily the physical maturation of the child, not necessarily at the point of psychological maturation, but it's more of a transition period between childhood and adulthood. Um, and, and I think using this definition, it kind of makes more sense um, uh, because we know that physical development is going to occur in a variable amount and that uh, psychological maturation is going to occur at a variable amount but it's just that transition period between uh, childhood and adulthood so in our culture in the united states really what it is is it's from being a child with the family and the family unit and defining oneself as part of the family if you think about um how most children define themselves. If you ask a child who they are, they usually say, well, I'm, I'm Joe and Brenda's uh, son, or I'm Joe and Brenda's daughter. But some period, time period, uh, starting in later childhood, when you start asking uh, uh, children, who are they? They tend to do more things like, well, I'm a, I'm a good soccer player. I, I am a football player. I'm a I'm a um, um, uh, band. Um, uh, they start to define themselves independent of their family unit. And for a lot of psychologists, that is the transition period. That's when a person is entering into that adolescence and starting to develop who they are as an adult because they're becoming independent from their family, okay? Now I say that that's culturally based, um, because if we look at a lot of Eastern cultures, um, this transition period isn't so isn't isn't so cut and dry. Where it's from defining yourself as, like I said, Brenda and Joe's kid, to being defined as a a good soccer player, for example. In Eastern cultures, that connection, that communal connection, remains. So. Um, uh, if they, if someone introduces themselves, they usually give their family origin and then, um, um, and definition. So, uh, cross-culturally, this definition of transition doesn't always work. Um, uh, and so, because in, in, in more, more, um, collective cultures, that connection with family remains. So there's not that transition period that we can clearly define here in the United States. We could look at also growth rate. Uh, so from the physical end, so we can talk about physical growth because that might be a marker is through most of childhood, 
people grow at a fairly steady pace, about five to 10 centimeters or two to three kilograms per year, okay? But with the beginning of adolescence, most individuals go on, go to a, a radical change. It's often called the growth spurt, okay? In girls, this is temp typically around the age of 10 to 13. In boys, it's around 12 to 15. And growth is quite rapid in this earlier lifespan. So we go from um, a growth rate of, um, you know, uh, we go from a growth rate of, you know, two to three kilograms to a growth rate of, of 11 for boys and nine for girls. And this only occurs for about three years. And so it's this rapid gain of growth uh, that we see. So this could be one marker of a transition between childhood to adolescence, um, is looking at the, the, what we call this growth spurt period, okay? And we can also look at when the development of secondary sexual characteristics uh, occur. Um, a particular important physical change during puberty is the emergence of second, uh, secondary sexual characteristics. Um, and also in young adulthood, the um, heading towards their mature size and form. Okay, so we see these issues occurring within adolescent years too. And from a psychological level, we know that this also creates a lot of confusion for a lot of uh, young people. Um, and, and as I mentioned in the lectures of Erickson, that this, uh, this period is marked by the notion that they feel themselves becoming different. And so there's this emergence of self-definition. And so the, you know, an example of, of uh, uh, secondary um, sexual characteristics in males is the development of, of uh, um, facial hair um, and, and those types of things. And as I mentioned, these are important from a psychological uh, perspective because it really affects a young person's sense of self and relation with others. Um, as we put in Erickson's terms, it's this period where you notice that you become different than a child than your child self and how did your child self relate to the world? They related with their family and care from their family um, um, and authorities and authority figures such as teachers. Um, and they're noting this physical and kind of uh, with that comes the emotional and psychological changes. And so we come to question, you know, what, wh who are we? Who are we in relations to others? Um, And we see that there's a lot of variation. Uh, pace of development leads to complex outcomes. And in some respects, those who mature earlier tend to have advantages than, uh, than that they are seen and treated as more adult-like. And uh, I should note though, that this is, this is very gender specific. When we say advantages, it's not always an advantage. Um, you know, we know that a, a great number of young women are bullied when they go through, the, when they develop their secondary sexual characteristics, 
at a younger age. They tend to be um, uh, bullied by other girls for one instance, and they tend to be very sexualized by uh, young boys um, and, and bullied by young boys who haven't developed their own uh, uh, secondary characteristics. So when we talk about advantages, we need to put it in the context of the person's social system in that uh, they, are, they are then given more expectations. They're provided with more liberties, usually by the family, and uh, allowed to explore responsibilities. Okay? But I do want to just define what is meant by advantages because we do see a lot of other issues when individuals go through um, uh, puberty at a younger age or, or go through this transition at a younger age. Um, we know that uh, for boys, on the other hand, so I just mentioned girls, that we know that for males, they do have a lot of social gains. Uh, they, we know that uh, the younger a, a uh, adolescence goes through this developmental phase, um, they tend to have more popularity and more confidence, um, which is kind of an opposite that we see, unfortunately, in a lot of women and young girls. Uh, in contrast, when we see late maturation, may experience things like insecurity um, and, and those types of things and, uh, and uh, who are ahead of them and when they compare themselves. One of the things about adolescence that we see is there's a marked increase in social comparison and a marked increase in, in people, you know, individuals comparing with each other. And that's important on a couple levels. If you remember when we talked about early childhood, I think I talked about it a little bit with Freud and I said, uh, young children between the age of about three to six, they role play, right? So they're learning about how they want to be as, a, as an adult and a human. Well, through, in the adolescence years, we're taking on those things from early childhood, those roles that we liked, and now we're going to socially compare them to others. And for some that aren't developing as quickly physically, uh, it can be, uh, uh, it can create a lot of insecurities with individuals. So one of the things that when we get into now cognitive development, um, I mentioned, I uh, can't remember, I think it was in the first lecture about the myelination of the brain that um, adolescents go through very quickly in a very quick uh, time frame, where the brain speeds up. Um, and if you want to think about it this way, yes, I mentioned how, you know, oftentimes they, they're not sure why or they did something when they do an impulse in the moment. Uh, but the, the advantage of having this quicker brain, if you think about it, if we, we make the analogy with a computer, you know, through childhood, we're, we're running on a 1990s uh, um, home computer, um, very slow, 
um, probably dial up uh, uh, internet where you have to wait minutes for it to kind of warm up and get going and then it's very slow. When we go through adolescence, it's kind of like installing uh, high speed internet with a very powerful CPU uh, uh, and lots of RAM for, for it to be filled. So um, we see this period as, as a period of, of good intellectual growth. Um, and we see that, uh, you know, uh, when we look at uh, competitions around the United States, there's a lot of competitions for, for teens and, and adolescents to go through that would help kind of revolutionize something, um, uh, uh, fight uh, poverty, all those things. Because what we've come to recognize is that the variety of solutions that we come up with as adolescents are much more varied than the ones we had in childhood or will have later in adulthood. So the, there's this spurt of creativity and this ability to kind of think outside the box. And it has to do again with that analogy of installing high-speed internet and a super powerful CPU. Um, if we remember that the, in Piaget's uh, um, um, theory, this period is marked by no longer considering things as concrete. And uh, I didn't focus on this. Part of that concrete is this immediate and present objects. We're able to think about things in our future. We're able to think about alternative outcomes, okay? When we look at um, uh, some of PHA's tasks, I, I mentioned today that most of these uh, transition periods is done with paper, but he did have a few tasks. Uh, one of them was with a set of pendulums with objects of different weights suspended from a string, different lengths, okay? I'll just read this. The task was to determine what influences the speed with which the pen pendulum swings. It is a weight of the object, the length of the string, the height from which the object is dropped and the speed with uh, which it pushes or some combination of factors. And that's the question we ask, okay? Individuals in the, um, who, who have transitioned into that formal operations phase will provide many different explanations. Uh, they're more likely to say it's a combination of factors. Children who haven't transitioned into that will say, give one immediate response based on their, their physical um, experience with the pendulum swinging back and forth, okay? And usually we'll anthropomorphize them in those earlier stages. So we'll notice one pendulum might be swinging faster than the other. And so we might say something like, well, one is just intrinsically faster than the other. Whereas in adolescence, we'll come up with different explanations that are based more on the physical attributes of what is going on. So this is an example of the pendulum and, and these are the different lengths and of the, the, the string, I guess you would say coil in this case, and you can see that each one is a different size. And as I 
as mentioned, you know, in operational uh, uh, thing, uh, thing, the task is rather haphazard. They tried guessing at random combinations, um, but in adolescents uh, who reached formal worked much more systematically in this fashion. They, they, they were more willing to do more experimentation. They were more willing to look at it from a, a, a bunch of different perspectives. And as, as mentioned, you know, in this formal operations, they're more likely to come up with different hypotheses of possible outcomes. And again, that's being able to see things from different perspectives uh, and, and to realize that things, uh, things that influence even things like motion aren't dependent on just one singular thing. It's dependent on a, multiple factors of issues. And, and kind of the conclusion that a lot of uh, cognitive developmental psychologists came up with is that uh, developmental progress, as it states here, depends at least in part on the cognitive opportunities, tasks, and challenges which adolescents are exposed to. Because one of the notions of between adolescence and childhood is that the, the, the tasks presented before us when we get into adolescence and young adulthood have a lot more complexity to them than when we were in childhood. And so this evolution of continued um, um, uh, complexity uh, is, tends to be this view, okay? Um, now there are some alternative uh, accounts. Um, for example, there's the information processing theory and arguing that what underlines development in adolescence has much has so much changes in formal logic skills as changes in processing capacity and efficiency. So in this argument, um, uh, this is this is the thing that we talked about earlier with myelination of the brain. That maybe uh, adolescence abilities to kind of see things more abstractly and from multiple perspectives has to deal, deal with our, our increased ability for information processing. Um, but what probably the conclusion that, that, that the cognitive researchers are right now is that it's a combination of both. It's a combination of this increased ability to process information but also the complexity of tasks that are handed to adolescents, all right? So now let's go to social development, okay? Um, the changes reflect biological and cognitive development as well as new opportunities that impact uh, people's expectations of people. So when we get into adolescence, there's this two-way transition, one, is we ourselves are changing both biologically and cognitively. And with that comes 
expectations from our social world and people's expectations of what we should and should not be able to do. And again, those expectations are becoming more and more complex and more and more uh, social, uh, especially outside of the family system. And we also know that, uh, and this kind of it leads back to the videos we watched on Wednesday, uh, gender becomes much uh, more central important for most individuals. Um, this is where um, uh, being, a, being a man or being a woman becomes very important. And those in between, this is where we see a lot of confusion. So for example, uh, people who are, who are not binary in their gender identity or their sexual identity, this is where we see things like uh, suicide attempts and suicidal ideation and uh, addiction rates and, and overconsumption of alcohol. This is where we start to see this on a, a, a pretty steep increase. Um, uh, and so we recognize that gender and sexual development are, are a central theme in, in, in adolescence worlds, okay? And the other thing that we should note that uh, in childhood, uh, cross-sex interests are tolerated to some extent, okay? If again, if again, we were to take out the social genderization of children, okay? Uh, some very interesting studies uh, have shown this, that among boys in childhood, um, they actually hold hands more, hug more, and are willing to kiss more than their female counterparts. Now that doesn't mean that females don't in childhood. It's just, it's surprising the level of intimacy, if we wanna put it in that terms, that young male boys show towards each other. Uh, but then sometime during adolescence, when we're learning those quote unquote male roles in society, we see men becoming more and more distanced from each other and they start to exchange that physical interaction with more competitive, aggressive interaction. Uh, and so this is where, you know, the, the proverbial uh, slap on the back um, during a football game kind of thing comes from is it's more of a camaraderie thing than it is an affection thing, okay? And so during childhood, for the most part, cross-sex interests are tolerated. Uh, we even note that, you know, we can, um, having a young girl uh, play tr with t uh, toy cars is more accepted, whereas, uh, and, and even with boys playing with dolls and having things like teddy bears are more tolerated. But then through the adolescent years, uh, either, either, either it's changed in the family, so mom and dad come and say, Let's time, it's time to redecorate the bedroom, or it's bullied out of a lot of children and the idea of play and the idea of, of being close to your, your, your fellow uh, uh, guys or your fellow girls becomes much more uh, socialized and bullied into the child of what is an acceptable and unacceptable male-female role, okay?
And on the sexual part, we, we do know that there's a, there is an overemphasis on, on sexual needs. And we, we really contribute this to the hyper level of hormonal, hormonal changes. Okay? Uh, during adolescence, we see a spike in hormones, which then is what starts the process of the se secondary sexual um, characteristics. It's what starts the process of menstruation in women, and it is what creates the increased production of uh, sperm in, in, in boys, okay? And this is when they're be we're becoming very sexually um, 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 uh, I just lost the word I was going to say, uh, sexually prepared is what I was going to say. I mentioned uh, when we were, again, when we go back to Erickson's, I mentioned in young adulthoods, uh, boys and men think about it every 90 seconds and, and, and women think about it every three to four hours. And I was talking about sexual interest. When we look at adolescence, however, uh, that, that statistic changes greatly. We see that men, boys and adolescents think about it on average. Again, this is just averages. There's great variation on average every 30 to 60 seconds. And women, girls in adolescence, actually, it goes from three to four hours, and it goes from 60 minutes to 90 minutes, so about an hour to an hour and a half. And, and the reason why I bring this up is, is focusing on the slide. We see this heightened interest in sexual activity in both boys and girls. We note that during adolescence, uh, uh, we become more interested in adult appearance. There is a narrowing of gender pathways and an increased interest in sex. And, the, the, and this, this comment right here cannot be um, uh, uh, overemphasized. Okay, um, I mentioned that attachment uh, determines the type of peers we interact with, but then it is that peer relationship that really determines who we're going to be sexually and romantically interested in into adulthood. Okay, um, we've found uh, through uh, a lot of research recently that it was traditionally thought that the parents had a huge influence on children's outcomes. Um, and that it was more important than peer uh, relationships in adolescence. But current research in many of the domains of psychological and social development are showing that in adolescence, peer relationships are in a lot of ways equal or more important than the influence of the parent, okay? That's not to say that parenting's not important. As I said, the parenting in childhood sets up the individual for the type of peers that the individual is going to accept in their life during adolescence, okay? So, so please don't mistake me in saying that uh, parenting is not important and the relationship between parent and child and parent and adolescent isn't important. What I am saying is that based on the selection of peers, we're finding that the peers' personality uh, for example, peer personalities are more closely related to the type of personality someone is going to get involved with romantically in adulthood. We find that peers 
tend to influence the way an individual will talk, an individual will speak more than the parent of origin. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I had both a daughter and a son, and I will tell you that it was strange to hear the language differences from when they were children and then when they went into adolescence. Um, I thought I was sometimes learning a foreign language, uh, especially from my son as he became more and more independent. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing as a, a dad that is also interested in human development to really see that transition and things like words people use when they're transitioning from childhood into adolescence, okay? And we also, one of the, again, one of my uh, key areas of study is, is identity. And we find again, you know, again, I'm not putting families on the back burner, okay? Uh, and this is not what I'm saying, what I'm, but what I would say as far as identity development, it is relationships with peers that really influence what part of an identity a adolescent going into young adulthood is gonna emphasize and going to express, okay? A lot has been said, especially in the popular liter, lit, excuse me, literature, about peer pressure. And so there's, you know, the peer pressure to drink, there's a peer pressure to um, uh, do uh, high risk behaviors, for example. And in some cases, there's peer pressure to, uh, for example, uh, maintain your faith in a lot of examples or maintain a, a good academic standing. So it's not always negative. But what we're finding more and more um, is that peer influences uh, vary across different domains of life. And that in, in all actuality, um, when we look at peer relationships and what we would consider peer pressure, a lot of adolescents report, I picked those friends. They didn't pressure me into something. I'm the one that went and I found them. And so, um, but from an outside view, especially from a parent's view, uh, we often look at adolescence and go, okay, my, my son made a really bad decision. He went out and drank with his friends. So he must have been pressured into doing that. It was his friend's bad influence that made him go do that. But what we're finding more and more and with more research that is coming out in adolescence is, is that's kind of a, what we call a parental myth in a lot of cases, not all. Remember, there's a lot of variation, but in a lot of cases, the, the, the idea of peer pressure is more of a parental myth and a social myth than it is a reality for a lot of adolescents. And so when we look at bad decisions that adolescents are making, we need to realize that the situation is much more complex than a bunch of people who know a kid that decide they're gonna go pressure him into drinking during the weekend or making them do any high risk behavior such as that. It's much, much more complex. 
Um, and in a lot of ways, it's interesting because when we look at good qualities of adolescence, a lot of parents will attribute that to their, their parenting skills. They will attribute it to their good family values and those types of things. But upon closer evaluation, the peers that the individual has chosen, the friends that they've chosen, have just had just as much impact on that adolescent making good decisions, quote unquote, than did the family values or, or how they were brought up. Again, not to de-emphasize that, the way we're brought up is, the, is also what will drive us to choose the peers that we have, but we can't deny in both cases, whether it's bad decisions or good decisions, we shouldn't be denying that those peer relationships are a huge influence and it's a choice of the adolescents to the ones that they go with. As I just mentioned on these slides, the much more complex early adolescence, some patterns of adolescence behavior such as drug use tend to show greater association with parental than peer practices. And I do want to say this on, on this issue. I, I just mentioned peer pressure as a large, uh, you know, in society, a lot of parents and whatnot will say, my child uses drugs because of the people he or she um, um, uh, interacts with. But upon closer analysis and closer observation, we find that things like drug use usually have more to do with parental influence than it does peer influence, which is an interesting kind of counter thesis to what, to what, um, um, what generally we think of as social. In fact, um, when we look at things, again, this is just averages, it's not everyone, there's a lot of variation. Um, a lot of drug use uh, could be stopped with our adolescents if they would actually listen to their peers rather than be influenced by their parental um, upbringing. Uh, because usually what we're finding in, in research is that even though the peers will, will indulge in the drug use or the high-risk um, uh, thing, usually there's always a conversation about, should we really do this? Um, but the conclusion always is, is something like, well, you know, my parents don't care or my parents do it. So, hey, it should be okay for us to do it. But we find in practice, when it comes to influence in some of these things, peers are just like the, the adolescents and they're questioning it too. Um, now, older adolescents perceive peer influence in matters of drug use as greater than parental. So in, in this first case, I'm talking about early adolescents, okay? But then as a, a adolescent gets older, they start to see that their influences have then been disassociated from parents and it's becoming much, much uh, uh, greater than parental in, uh, influence. So keep these two ideas divided uh, because when we're looking at early adolescents, we're looking at you know, more parental influence to bad decisions. And then when we get into older adolescents, that's when peer pressure or peer, I shouldn't say peer pressure, peer influence becomes a larger factor in decisions. 
And we know this because a lot of times parents are the uh, earliest model of smoking um, uh, and offer the opportunities for things like cigarettes and the like. And, and we view parental practices in that light. Okay. But again, this can change in later adolescence when we have more peer influence and we accept more peer influence. And I have mentioned already that, you know, our childhood and our childhood experiences are set up by our parents and our parental expectations. Uh, but, uh, and again, peer selection is not all impotent in that it, um, it's not always uh, easily based. So, and there is some myths of uh, and reality of adolescence, as this table suggests. So, adolescence is a period of storm and stress. Uh, we should note that only a minority of adolescents experience serious psychological disturbances, despite our cultural um, views of adolescence. Uh, there is a huge, another myth is there is a huge generational gap between adolescents and their parents. Uh, but yet we see that most adolescents continue the values, their parents are companions and a source of advice. Um, I, always, I always think this is interesting when I see, uh, for example, my generation and the generation above me um, making negative comments about the, the, the up and coming generations. And this always confuses me because um, it was my generation and the generation above me that raised the younger generations. And so to be criticizing them is really to criticize myself um, and to view uh, you know, these, these, generation, these mythical generational gaps as negative as I see sometimes on like Facebook or Instagram. It's kind of a counterintuitive if you really think about it. Um, because there's a, this complex interaction between uh, the generation above you and the generation, two generations above you and you yourself as a younger generation, because it was that generation that raised you. And it's your generation that uh, also is getting a lot of the values and stuff that you lead from. And so I always think it's interesting, this, this myth, myth generation gap. I think when we look at generation gaps and the difference between generations, it probably has more to do with things like technology. You all mentioned this um, when we were talking about the decreasing age of puberty and the increasing age of psychological maturation. It probably has more to do with things like uh, technology that uh, creates a different understanding of things. But when we look at values, um, and value systems, they're more intergenerational than they are generational. Uh, and I, I've mentioned this already, adolescents, uh, the other myth is adolescents are dominated by peer pressures. Uh, and as I've mentioned, uh, adolescents tend not to rate peer pressure as a major problem or fee feeling of being able to resist it. 
Another myth is adolescents are dominated by television viewing. We could say today it's YouTube viewing or Instagram viewing. Um, uh, but uh, one of the interesting things is that we find that adolescents, even though there's an increase in interactive gaming, right, in, in computer use, when we look at the time in front of things like television, um, your parents spent more time in front of a television or an entertainment system than even, even the, 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 the YouTube and, and, and social medias of today. And the other one is adolescents are irresponsible. Many adolescents undertake substantial responsibilities at home, at school, and at work. Um, and a lot of times, especially in many disadvantaged um, uh, families, they're taking on so much responsibility with home, and then they have to go to work, and then they have to go to school. A lot of adolescents are caring for their younger siblings. In some cases, they're caring for their adult parent. And so that lowers their performance level in some other areas, such as school or social life, which makes them appear to be irresponsible, when in reality, they're taking on much more responsibility. And that, that taking on, we only have a limited amount of resources that we can really give to um, each of these areas. And the more responsibility that is put on the adolescents, the less they're going to perform in certain domains, such as school um, or at work, um, and maybe sometimes at home. Another uh, myth is adolescents are reckless drug takers. Okay, we do know that most adolescents experiment with legal and illegal drugs, but for the majority, this is a short-lived experimentation that is not leads to dependency. And this is kind of an interesting uh, uh, issue too, because if we look at it from statistical basis, and I know this sounds gross, but sewage experiments, uh, taking samples in sewages and whatnot, we actually find that uh, middle-aged individuals, individuals uh, between the age of 30 to the age of uh, 60, um, have the highest use of illegal drug use and uh, inappropriate legal drug use um, and have much more drug issues and dependency issues than young adults and adolescents. But adolescence tends to get this bad rap of being an addictive uh, uh, population, but it just doesn't work out in experimentation when we actually measure these things based on age. All adolescents are the same is another myth. This is a uh, patently not true. Adolescents cover a large developmental period. There is enormous individual differences among people in their age group as in others. Okay. All right, I just wanna stop really quick. I went over a lot of information. Is there any questions or comments regarding um, um, adolescence. All right, you're all quiet today.
Well, thank you, Benjamin and Emma. Okay. All right. Well, let's go on and let's try to get through some of the, the issues dealing with adulthood. So again, you know, when we're looking at this from a chronological basis, we got to keep these different things in mind that there's a lot of variability. Uh, right now, we consider early adulthood from being about the age of 18 to 40, with middle adult age being 41 to 65, and then late adulthood 66 plus. Um, but we do need to recognize it really depends on when you define adulthood. So if you define it as being able to live independently without any parental support, um, as I mentioned earlier in these conversations, it's about 21 for uh, women and about 34 for men. So this goes largely into the early adulthood phase. However, if we look at social expectations of adults and when society and law defines adulthood, that's where we get the mark of 18 and heading somewhere to about the age of 40, okay? But we should note, despite those debates, that by the time we reach early adulthood, we have spent a long time developing. And development is from this period is going to come to a slow. Just as it is difficult to precisely adolescence, and I just uh, stated this, it's very difficult to say when adulthood actually commences. We should note that uh, it is during early adulthood that for most people, it's a time of peak physical capacities. Um, we can see this in most star athletes that uh, there's not many athletes that you'll find uh, that are over the age of 40 when we go into middle adulthood. The majority uh, usually uh, in their careers in their late 20s or early 30s. We also know that uh, the body reaches full height in late teens and physical strength increases in the late 20s and early 30s. And so we get another kind of growth spurt uh, in our late 20s and early 30s. Um, you know, when we look at, uh, I used to do uh, strongman competitions and everything like that. Um, and it was in this late 20s and early 30s where things were the most competitive. Um, and then after that, it, it kind of reduced in as far as weight competition and everything else. Manual agility and coordination and sensory capacities such as vision and hearing are also at their peak during this uh, uh, developmental period. Okay, so we see physically young adulthood is we're really at our maximum abilities and our maximum capacity, at least, uh, I, I should say this, at least naturally. Okay. meaning that we don't have to take a lot of supplements and, and those things to reach ultimate strength and sensory ability. But we do know <laughs> that uh, there are some uh, 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 perceptual changes and capacity changes. Um, so, for example, you know, as it says in this one, some declines in perceptions, such as high-pitched tones, is found by late 20s. Manual dexterity becomes reduced in, by mid-30s. Uh, we know that skin elasticity um, ends about mid to end of 30s, 
what, what I mean by that is until this period, uh, you could lose or gain a lot of weight, for example, and your skin will, will, will uh, conform to whatever size you're at. Um, stretch marks are, don't become as prevalent um, and, and the like, those types of uh, growth scars, okay? But somewhere between about 35 to 40, we start to lose those abilities and this is where a person, uh, you know, they'll lose a lot of weight and their, their, their skin will retain its original shape. It's not as elastic, okay? Um, this is where things like um, uh, 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 toughening creams and those start to become less efficient on the skin. Um, but in general, despite these declines, people in their early adulthood feel robust and energetic. And as, as I mentioned earlier, one of the, the issues that comes into young adulthood is the confounding variable of the, the ability to use legally damaging substances, such as alcohol and tobacco. Um, and many can access uh, uh, illegal stimulants and narcotics during this age group because the financial capacities are increased, the independent capacities are increased. Um, and during young adulthood, we become more responsible for our own eating and exercising habits. So not surprisingly, health status during uh, uh, this age group is really dependent more on one's own behavioral choices. So I mentioned we're at our most physical capacities, but then because of the independence and the access to uh, non-healthy uh, habits, it, it does create a lot of variability that is really dependent on the individual's behaviors and their choices that they make, okay? So with cognitive development, uh, again, we're, there's a lot of individual differences. Most young are able to deal with cognitive tasks on a more abstract way than before and obtain a solutions to a problem by comparing possible explanations, okay? And the question that has, has uh, commonly occurred, so just like physical development, uh, has cognitive development reached kind of its highest plateau during young adulthood? And most investigators uh, disagree with this notion. Again, we, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier in this lecture, when we look at cognitive decline, it really has more to do, one, with a person's biological predispositions to things like dementia and Alzheimer's, but also the individual's use of that system uh, and whether they continue that use, they see less decline and sometimes we see increases in middle and late adulthood. We find that um, there is a difference in um, the, the type of challenges that were faced. In, in young adulthood. You know, in, in adolescence and in, 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 in childhood, our belief systems are set um, and, and, and a lot of times idealized in a lot of ways. But when we get into adulthood, those idealized uh, values and morals and ideas of the way the world ends 
uh, the world is um, developed is becomes much more um, abstract, much more challenged. It, those, it becomes challenged. Okay, um, you know, I'll, I'll fully admit um, um, in my child family system, um, things like same-sex relationships were seen through my my childhood and adolescence as as something completely wrong, as something disgusting, as something improper, as something that, uh, uh, you know, is, is something that, uh, as I've seen in a lot of, of, of things where, you know, a person can be influenced to become uh, gay or lesbian and those types of things. But then when I was in college, um, I worked with some individuals and I became very, very good friends with a, with, with a, a good uh, friend of mine. Um, and one day we were working at the same place and I showed up to work and, and he said, you know, I want to introduce you to someone and be, by him was another male. And um, I was thinking, oh, is this his brother? Is this another friend? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, I want to introduce you to my mate. My, he's, he's my, my boyfriend. And that was this. This is this is a kind of example of dialectically opposing forces, because at that moment, all of my preconceived ideas about a person being gay, about how it kind of rubs off on other people, so you need to make sure you distance yourself from it, and all those things, those were completely challenged in that moment, because I had to sit there and go, you know, I've been really close with this good friend of mine. Um, but I'm not feeling any changes with my own feelings. I'm not feeling like I'm, I'm a disgusting person because I'm around this person. And so that this is an example of those challenging forces that kind of, and, and in a lot of ways, force us to have to change our, our value and our, our systems of thinking to be more consistent with our actual observations in the real world, okay? And so that's just an example of the, the, the more challenging cognitive challenges we start to go through through a young adulthood. Um, and we also uh, uh, see that relationships are much more complex. Um, so we start to become close to other people and, and, and friends, and, and at times we see them as love and warming and generous. At other times, they, that same person can be self-centered and aloof. Um, are they generous or selfish, affection or remote, and their behaviors change? And we start to recognize that uh, people are much more complex than the, than the way we viewed them in adolescence and in childhood. Uh, kind of going to that concrete mode of thinking in late childhood is that, you know, people have good qualities and they have bad qualities. And those qualities are dependent upon many factors such as mood, experience, and the situation. And this complexity of the world is something that young adults have to realize and live. He actually argued that um, uh, unlike Piaget's uh, uh, argument that we have just the formal 
rational phase, he felt that we have what's called post-formal reasoning. And this is a thought beyond Piaget's formal operation characterized by understanding that there may be multiple perspectives on a problem and that most appropriate solution may be context dependent, okay? Um, I think of this in, in the notion of different belief systems, different governmental systems, different religious systems, in that uh, there's multiple ways to determine a situation or an outcome. And for some contexts, some are better than others, but this is this context-dependent notion that Regal argued about, is that really our context is dependent upon the solution, not just a fixed idea, or, and that multiple solutions can go to the same result. And then there's a, 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 a others who propose that people progress through three broad stages, each of which uh, is own distinct function. And the first one is absolutist. This is reasons assume there is always a single clear answer to a given problem. And this kind of is highlighted in, in um, uh, uh, childhood through adolescence, where we have this security of thinking that our belief systems and our ideas are the solution. And then he argued that we go through what's called dialectical reasoning. And this is competing positions are integrated and synthesized and achieved, all right? And then from there, we go to what's called a relativist reasoning. And this is individuals become aware that there are often different perspectives on any given issues and that the correct answer may be dependent again on the context of the situation and, the, and what solutions are necessary for that context. And I go back to what we talked about with Piaget's theory, where we talked about how the environment really determined at what level of Piaget and cognitive development people went through and which was most um, advantageous for that situation, that environment, and that context. And that's kind of the relativitist reasoning, okay? Because again, if I go back to that, uh, I mentioned that uh, individuals uh, in, in more of the Amazonian areas that have been untouched by Western modernization and industrialization, they're much more fit to survive in that environment than if we took a post-industrial person and a post-Western person uh, and, and put them into that environment. They would need a lot more resources to survive. And this is kind of the relativist reasoning idea is that we can see that a different situations demands different perspectives, different ways of being uh, to reach success. Now, what this, uh, what this researcher uh, argues is that uh, young adults uh, go through the absolutist phase. They are capable of addressing many problems, but they tend to believe that all problems have a correct answer. However, people who get into the relativistic stage have become aware that there is often different perspectives on any given issue, and the correct answer may depend on the context.
And eventually what uh, on the cognitive level and, and what he would argue being, being successful through young adulthood is to get through the dialectic phase to kind of synthesize these approaches. Um, I'm going to leave this discussion about IQ for another time when we're getting more into the cognitive uh, areas. So I'm going, kind of going to just skip through this area for right now. Um, what I will say, though, on this area, if you look at all of these areas, these are all areas of intelligence testing. So we have inductive reasons, spatial orientation, uh, perceptual speed, numerical ability and all these abilities. And we can graph these on, on, on a slide. And what we can recognize is they peak around the age of about 53 to 46. So middle adulthood. And then they all have slight declines from this time on. All right, so when we look at IQ, um, what we're going to recognize later on in the course and when we look at cognitive abilities, is it's not really in adolescence when we're at our peak cognitive level. We actually start reaching our peak cognitive level when we hit around 39 and through about the age of 53. This is when we're at our peak uh, in, in, as far as intellectual abilities based on these variables here, okay? And so, it's important to recognize that there, there's a lot of things to look forward to when we go through young adulthood into middle adulthood, that this is when our cognitive capacities are going to be at their prime. With the exception of perceptual speed, I should bring that up, our perceptual speed, how quickly we perceive things uh, is at its peak in a young adulthood and, and into adolescence. I should make clear that that's one exception to this rule. Okay. When we look at a young adulthood into the social emotional areas, um, uh, we, we know that uh, this is a very formidable developmental task because we now have the issues of employment and unemployment. Uh, we have um, issues of, of romance and, and uh, the, the, the notion of eventually starting a family and this comes with its own stress and anguish. So on, on, the, on the social level, we're dealing with employment and unemployment. We're dealing with college and being college students. We're also dealing with uh, the, the notion of romantic relationships. And alongside of the, these things, we have still have our relationships with our own families and parents and increased expectations uh, that uh, young people have to take on to be responsible for their own lives, especially here in the United States. And so there, there's these confounding issues. In adolescence, we give some leeway to responsibilities. We give more support to an adolescent who is dumped versus an adolescent who's getting in relationships. We give leeway on things like employment and unemployment, or if we even want our adolescents to be employed at all. But through the young adulthood, these are all put on the individual. 
and several different theories uh, uh, on, on this personal development level um, uh, have, have been proposed. We, we can look at a psychoanalytic perspective. We talked about Erickson, the intimacy versus isolation, uh, the ability to love and trust other people. We talked about that with Erickson. Uh, we can look at another theory of Levison, um, who extended a lot of Erickson's ideas um, and talked about the relationship between developing an individual and the demands of society. And what Levison emphasized what in this, this time period are the social role requirements at different life stages and that the interaction between personal growth and relationships. For example, uh, Levison's term for individuals' visions uh, as life gold formed 17 to 20 years, 22 years of age, contributing to motivation for subsequent personal development. He argued that th this period is when a person really dreams about who they're going to become. And this kind of just emphasizes the transitional phases between 22 to 28. We organize around forging pathways at work and attaining special personal relationships. At around age 30, 28 to 30, we transition and undergo a moderate degree of self-questioning, reviewing their dreams, the choices that they've made, dependent upon the life experiences they have. The rest of this decade from 33 to 40 is a settling down period where we usually see people uh, forming their own little niche in life, uh, families and domestic roles, and they're basically getting their lives in order, okay? We also noted, uh, you know, when we talk about things like a, a, a attachment, um, we, we in intimacy, are we secure, anxious, or avoidant? And we can look at Erickson's and Levinson's uh, uh, argues around this too, such as sense of personal identity with a, the need to also have close uh, relationships with others. Interestingly, there's a strong similarity in the way people develop early relationships with caregivers during infancy and intimacy in adulthood, as we've mentioned uh, when we talked about attachment. And we see that uh, a lot of psychologists, and even today, when we talk about attachment in, in early adulthood, uh, they're very similar to the ones that we see in infancy with secure, anxious, ambivalent, and avoidant type of attachments. For example, secure attachments in young adulthood is loves, lovers find intimate relationship comfortable and rewarding. They trust their partner and feel confident of his or her commitment. And then anxious, ambivalent tend to be uncertain. Uh, and I'm, I'm not really going to emphasize these much, but I want you to realize and I want you to see that these are things that uh, develop through childhood and through adolescence about whether we're going to have a secure, anxious, or ambivalent type of, of, of issue. Now, now um, one thing that I would like to state is that in early adulthood, we can start with a secure um, attachment. 
but dependent upon our experience, we can end up with an insecure attachment. Okay, and again, I can go back to uh, when I worked with victims of domestic violence or people who just were having a difficult time with relationships. Um, a lot, I did work with a lot of individuals who had a very, when they started into relationships, they went into it very secure, very confident. But then negative things happen, such as cheating behavior, uh, such as abuse behaviors. And those very secure individuals then started to have an insecure pattern with relationships. So what I'm trying to say is, is that th these attachment things that we're talking about are not set. They will continually change through the life cycle dependent upon the type of individuals we bring into our life. Okay, gang, I apologize, but we're almost running out of time. So I'm not gonna get to the middle to late